So as a reminder, Paul and his company um, have just parted ways from John, and uh, Paul and Bartimus and, and probably some others, I don't know, are, uh, they've just left Paphos and Perga, and they're currently in Antioch, and they're speaking in the synagogue. And that's where we pick up in uh, Acts 26, following up from last week. So you read along with me. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of the salvation sent. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. And when he was seen many days of them which came up from excuse me, came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto their children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second Psalm, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. And as concerning he that raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from, the thi- from all things which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers, and wonder and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldst before salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many were ordained to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. But they shook off the dust of their feet again that <clears throat> against them and came unto Iconium. And the disciples were filled with the joy. Sorry, were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. You may take your seats. Good morning. It's good to be in the Lord's house this morning. Excited to have the word open and looking forward to hearing from the Lord this morning from the pages of Scripture here in Acts 13. We'll be looking at 42 through 52 this morning as we continue our third leg of the journey in the book of Acts this morning. Before we begin, I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer. Father, we ask this morning that you would give us ears to hear, grant us grace to receive your words, and move us then, Father, to proclaim your words to others. Grant us boldness to persevere when opposition comes, and teach us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Father, I ask this morning that you would fill us 
with joy and enable us to walk together in the power of the Holy Spirit. And in Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. I'd like to, up front, address a a, a modern-day snare. Now, some of you here may not consider it to be a snare. Some of you like it. Some of you coddle it and embrace it like a, uh, like a little one might embrace that favorite blanket. You might like this. But I believe this particular word is the answer that many of you give when confronted with daily decisions. It's a word that comes to the surface when there's high demand for your attention, whether that is at home or whether that is at work. It's a word that's used to rationalize oftentimes why you didn't get something done. Are you ready? The word is busy. Busy. What is it to be busy? And is being busy in itself wrong? Author and pastor, Kevin DeYoung, in his book, I... I completed his book a few weeks ago and found one of the excerpts in there particularly helpful, tied in here to what we're talking about this morning, in his book called Crazy Busy, subtitled A Mercifully Short Book About a Really Big Problem. He writes these words about busyness. He says, the busyness that's bad is not the busyness of work, but the busyness that works hard at the wrong things. It's being busy trying to please people, busy trying to control others, busy trying to do things we haven't been called to do. So if it's true that the bad busyness is the busyness that works hard at the wrong things, it might be prudent right here to ask, what are these wrong things? You might also be inclined to ask, what are the right things that we ought to be busy about? And when we ask that question, we immediately ought to be turned immediately to the Word of God. What are the right things that we are to be about? Our attention should point and aim at this Word. Because you see, when questions come, we need to think about and consider, are are, are you inclined to search the Scriptures for your answers? Do you see the scriptures as simply one of many places to go for answers? Or the place to go for your answers? Are you more inclined to query the internet or schedule eight weeks with a counselor than to seek the Lord in his word for answers? The text today includes Jews, Gentiles, Christians, non-Christians. And the word of the Lord has gone forth. Verses 16 through 41, Paul has been preaching in the synagogue. And now today, we are recipients of the response from the word of God preached. We're going to get a little look and see window into how the people responded to the word of God preached. Okay? How are these listeners going to respond to the word of God? Are they going to respond at all? How does their response to the word of God connect to the bigger picture presented in the text? You see, when you you look at what God has been doing in the book of Acts, taking his gospel truth from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria, and now extending it, expanding it in to the end of the earth, through whom? Through his called, available, faithful vessels. In this case, Paul and Barnabas. You see that God's plan involves God's people responding in obedience to God's word, operating in the power of God's spirit. That seems to be the pattern. See, God's people cannot faithfully live this way when they are busy working hard at the wrong things. Amen? It's not possible. And really, that's the premise this morning as we look at the text. The text this morning, as I see it here in 42 through 52. This text is going to go a long way to help us understand a right response to the word of God. The text will awaken us to expect a response every time the word of God goes forth. 
The text will help us to grasp the necessity of responding to God's word and show the folly of a wrong response. The text will also uncover the fruit of responding rightly to God's word and serve as an encouragement to your soul to keep you, to keep you pressing on in your walk, in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, to keep you pressing in, to intimately know this God through his word. To arrive, perhaps, as the psalmist did in Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. So let's look at the word. Do you have your Bibles? Open up to Acts 13, and we'll begin looking at verses 42 and 43. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words, these words, the words preached. They, pray, they, pray, they were begging, they were urging, some translations say, that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. So when the, now when the congregation had broken up, the official service, if you will, had ended, many of the Jews and devout proselytes, these were the folks who had been converted to Judaism, okay? They followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Now, on the other side of the preached word, that was verses 16 through 41, Acts 13. On the other side of the preached word, the text now is giving us a picture of immediate response from those gathered that day in the synagogue at Antioch, Pisidia. And as I read the text, it causes me to wonder about the expectations associated with a response to the word of God. And so here's the first question from the text that I'd like you to think about this morning. Do you expect a response? Do you expect one? You see, it's one thing for the preacher to ask that question. And here's the hope, church, that I have from the word as I preach this word faithfully each week. Here's the hope I hold on to. It's found in Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but what does it do? It waters the earth, it makes it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word that goes forth from my mouth, God says. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. And it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. That's the hope I hold on to as I preach and proclaim this word of God. It's going to accomplish what he intends it to accomplish every time it goes forth. Brothers and sisters, I'd ask a question of you this morning. Do you expect a response from the word of God? Do you expect a response to the word of God when it goes forth? There are three levels perhaps we would consider, maybe ask that question. First is in your own individual reading time in the word. And pray that that's happening in your life. But in your own individual reading, when you read the word of God... Do you read expecting to respond in some way, shape, or form? Do you read expecting not only to hear from God, but reading in such a way that I'm going to respond to what God has just told me? So there's the individual level. But there's also, I'd like you to consider your own family gatherings in the home. When the word of God is read, do you regularly practice responding to it? If God's word is being proclaimed in your household, and here again, as a side note, I pray that it is. I pray that this word of God is is taking center stage in your home. And so when it's put forth, when it's put into play, is there any expectation of a response from each member of the family? There's a third level that I'd like you to think about with this, and that is that when you gather on Sunday mornings to worship, are you anticipating Your need to respond to God's word. Does the preached word necessitate a response each week? Okay. You and I are responders to God's word. He speaks. We respond to what we hear from him. He initiates. He quickens. He enlightens through his good spirit. And we're called to respond in obedience, to walk by faith, 
to operate according to the new creation that he's made us to be. I want you to notice as you read the text how often the word of God or the word of the Lord is mentioned. It's a major theme in the text, and rightly so. See, because his word deserves our time. His word deserves our attention. It deserves an immediate response on our end. God's word demands a response. If we miss many things this morning, I pray and hope that we would get that. God's word demands a response on my end. And they're really only going to, you're only going to see a couple different ways, truly, that we can respond to the word. You see, we've become, I believe, accustomed to hearing the word of God preached. But have we grown dull in expecting a response? Do you really think that God works through his preached word? Paul says in Corinthians, he says that God, people get saved through the foolishness of the preached word. Do we really believe God speaking through his word? The text shows us what happened after Paul preached his message in the synagogue. It says that the Gentiles begged or urged that these words get preached again the next Sabbath. And in verse 43, you see that the Jews and devout proselytes, these converts to Judaism, they followed Paul and Barnabas. So one group urgently pleads to have these words preached again next week. Another group follows Paul and Barnabas out of the synagogue. And you get the picture there of a Q&A walking along the road. The people asking them, Paul and Barnabas speaking, urging, persuading them to continue in the grace of God. And so this group is following, seemingly wanting to know more. The text tells us they were being urged to continue in the grace of God. It seems to me that these people following Paul and Barnabas had received Christ already. And they were curious. They wanted to hear more. They were hungering for this word. And so what we have in verses 42 and 43, it reveals to us a response to God's word just preached. Do we see this? What kind of response then do you have to the preached word? And I'm in no way advocating that everyone rush the pulpit once the message is done today to ask questions And concerns that you might have from the text. However, I am pointing to a much needed deliberate response. I believe it's called for from the text. Do you expect a response to the word of God? When we gather together on a Sunday morning, do you expect to hear from God in his word? Do you expect God to move through his powerful word in the lives of others seated around you? Do you expect God to speak to you, to speak to your brother or sister down the road? Do you expect God to speak to your children? Perhaps there's one particular child in your home who has not yet heard God's word, heard. He's maybe heard preaching, but he's truly not heard in the sense of been saved by hearing the word. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. I'm afraid the church has become accustomed to listening to sermons, to the preached word, without, detached, if you will, without any expectations of response. Men, when your boss calls your company together for an important meeting, and he outlines some responsibilities for you and all your colleagues... Each of you has an important part to play in the company. And the boss clearly outlines some next steps just before you leave the meeting. Tell me, if you are a good employee of the company, are you going to be motivated to respond in any way following that meeting with your boss? Are you compelled to take any action steps in light of the boss's words? You see, church, the word of God is sufficient and complete for all of our lives. It's God-breathed. His revelation to man. And when you open it, you are hearing the words of God. So how is it then that we can read this Bible and walk away unchanged? How is it that we can hear the preached word and leave the same way we came in? 
in your own time alone with God's word? Are you walking out what you're reading? Is there a response happening to what God says in his book? And you know, as I stand here by the grace of God this morning, I'm expecting his word to accomplish exactly what it is he sent it forth to accomplish. I'm expecting him to do his work because that's what his word says he's going to do through his word. I know that his word will not return to him void or empty. It's going to accomplish, it's going to do what he desires his word to do in each one of your lives. The question, church, is not, will God speak through his word? The question is, will you listen to his word, expecting him to speak? Do you approach the preached word with the presupposition that God does speak? And therefore, because he speaks, are you anticipating how you might then respond to him? God's word demands your response. Let's keep our eyes here on the text. Look at verse 44. You arrive at verse 44 and you are one week removed from Paul's original message preached in the synagogue. One week. And would you keep that in mind as you read? On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. I'd like to just bring a few observations to light from the text. It might be helpful. First of all, it says that almost the whole city came together. The response to the preached word caused quite a stir, it seems, in Antioch. People left the place on that day. There was a big buzz about the word they just heard preached. They were buzzing, notice, about the word, not about the preacher. How do I know that? The text says. The city came together to hear the word of God. It doesn't say they came to hear Paul. Nearly the entire city came together to hear this word of God. And whether this took place in the synagogue or someplace else, text doesn't say. And you know, I got to thinking, if something like that happened here, we, we probably wouldn't have enough chairs. We only have a limited number of chairs here. It might be a little inconvenient to, you know, if a bunch of people all of a sudden on a Sunday just showed up. It might inconvenience. It might be, I mean, I just wonder, how would we respond to that? With all these people coming, maybe you've never seen them before. They just come in and they're coming in to hear the word. What would be our response to that? Well, that's what happened this day. A bunch of people showed up. And you get the idea in verse 44 that the people that showed up didn't necessarily make it a habit to show up on a regular basis. There was a stirring that happened throughout the week. People were talking about this word of the Lord. And almost the whole city shows up to hear this word that had been talked about all week. And you know, it's interesting when you look back at history and you see how history uh, provides for us examples. When God's word stirred the hearts of people. Jonathan Edwards, writing of the awakening in Northampton, Massachusetts in 1735, he writes, he says, There was scarcely a single person in the town, either young or old, that was left unconcerned about the great things of the eternal world. Or Robert Murray McShane, writing in the 1800s, said of the awakening on the west side of Dundee in Scotland. He said that at the height of the blessing, you could walk from one end of that densely populated district to the other and never be out of sound of the singing of praises of God. I mean, what a glorious thought, isn't it? To be able just to walk through town and be able to know that people are singing worship, praise to God. And you're hearing worship all around you. The word of God is being exalted. It's being magnified. Church, this really has happened in our history. And yet as you read this text, you see that the large crowds are kept from hearing the word for which they came. And once again, the text is very clear on why the Jewish leaders put a stop to the word of God. Look at verse 45. It says, but when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. And contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Remember, all of this comes in response to Paul's preached word. And so now in verse 45, remember we're one week removed from the preached word. How is it possible that so many people came to hear the word of God on this occasion? 
Well, the only thing we can figure is that there was a lot of word of mouth going on throughout the week. A lot of people talking about this word of the Lord. The word of the Lord, if we were to take it in modern terms today, the word of the Lord was, was probably number one on the trending list. It was something people were talking about all week. But now instead of hearing the word of God, they hear someone opposing last week's message. The text then directs me to ask another question. Do you block the response? We talk about do we expect one. But here in the text, I believe the question is, do you, do you block the response? Is your own response hindered by your inflated ego or pride? Are you keeping others from responding to the word of the Lord out of your own selfish desires? If you notice in the text, Paul and Barnabas did not receive an invitation from the Jewish synagogue leaders to stand and preach on that next Sabbath. Did you notice that? There's no invite put forward in the text. We're left to believe that a great deal of positive response happened following the preached word. We saw that in verses 42 and 43. But here in verse 45, you begin to see that not everyone, it seems, was on board with this preached word. Was the problem the message preached or an observable response to the message preached from a week ago? The text seems to indicate that, that when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. Okay? Or jealousy, some of your translations have. Seeing the multitudes prompted the envy. Think about that for just a moment. Seeing all of the people that were there prompted the envy. The envy manifested itself in contradicting and blasphemous words. Words that opposed what Paul spoke last week. And you know, this word envy, it directs its poison at flesh and blood. The Bible says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Envy points its poison at flesh and blood. It very seldom, if ever, has an ear inclined to what God thinks. Envy in the Bible is sin. It's a work of the flesh in Galatians 5 verse 21. It's an outworking of one's own selfish desires. James 1.14, it would fall in that category. My own selfish desires. What is it that would cause such envy and jealousy among seeing the multitudes gather on that Sabbath? A couple, couple reasons maybe we could put forward. One, could it be that they were envious that they had never drawn such a crowd? Could it be that they were envious because they had been, they had been at work faithfully reading the law and the prophets each week? And they'd not seen any fruit response quite like this. And so maybe the thought now is, how, can I, how do I get rid of the, these guys? I mean, they're turning the crowds away from me. Could it be that they were envious over the fact that Paul's message advocated equal footing for salvation, both to the Jew and to the Gentile. We are God's people, and we need to preserve this word from these heathen. I think it was probably more the latter reason. They didn't like the fact that the word was being put forth and offered to someone other than themselves. It reminded me, I was reading the biography of William Carey, missionary to India. And on one particular occasion, he's getting ready to go to India. And he and a few other folks that are going to be traveling with him. And they're going to some churches and they're going to raise some funds so that they can go. As, as William was very clear, the Lord had called him to India. And there was a particular denomination that refused to give a penny to the cause of mission, service, and work in India. And the reason, which ties into possibly the reason why the envy here in the text. The word came back that God will take care of the heathen. You don't need to go over there. That was the reason. That was the response for not giving a penny. And see, I, I, I was thinking about that as I was reading this text and the envy, the jealousy that's here. This, this wanting to hold on to what they had. And, and I got thinking about this question, are, are we blocking? Are you blocking? Let's, let's, let's put it here before us this morning. Are you blocking in any way the response from the word of God? Are you busy 
pursuing wrong things and thereby constructing your own blockade to hear the word of God. You might be blocking yourself from hearing the word. Isn't that interesting? But you also might be blocking a response from your own family members. Have you ever thought about that? Are you keeping them from hearing the word of God on a regular basis? Are you neglecting these scriptures? Are you neglecting putting the word of God into play in your home that people in your home might hear God speak? Are you blocking the response of others here from hearing the word of God? Oh. Well, now we might be stepping on some toes here. What do we mean? Are you constantly distracting others? Are you apt to draw attention away from the word of God? Are you regularly? I'm talking about regularly. I'm not talking about a one-time deal. Are you regularly coming in late on a Sunday? After the worship time started? When the worship and song has started? When the preaching has begun? Are you still outside in the parking lot? Are you in the bathroom? What, are, you, are you distracting in any way, shape, or form from others hearing the word going forth? After the service is over? Are you blocking a response from others by, just by the simple nature of your conversation? The things that you would talk about. Are you talking at all about the word preached? Is it even on your radar? Church, let's do our best to collectively see that the word of God goes forth. Let's do our best to make sure as much as possible that we're not the ones blocking the word of God going forth. So what happens when this word gets blocked? What's Paul and Barnabas do? Look at 46 and 47. It says they grew bold. By the way, in the scriptures, especially when you read in Acts, when, when there's that, they grew bold, that, that boldness comes from the Holy Spirit. Okay? They grew bold. And they said it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge for yourselves, judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord commanded us. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. So in what sense was it necessary that the word of God should be spoken to the Jews first? A couple ideas connected to that I think are important to put forward. First of all, the Jews were God's, they were his covenant people. You see that all throughout the scripture, his covenant people. But I think you also see that Jesus modeled his word to go first to the lost sheep, the house of Israel, Matthew chapter 10. Verse 6, I think you also see that the gospel, according to the book of Romans, is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew. There's an order and a priority. I think you also see in the scripture that it was necessary, perhaps, for personal reasons. Paul says in, in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be what? Saved. I want you to notice that Paul equates the Jewish leader's rejection of the word of God with judging themselves unworthy of eternal life. There seems to be connection, a clear connection in the word being made between one receiving this word, which testifies of Jesus, and one receiving eternal life. And I was drawn to John chapter 5. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. In John 5, 38 through 40, Jesus says, But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me, Jesus says. But you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. See, life is offered to those who believe on Jesus. And the Jewish leaders in the text were operating out of envy. They were clouded by selfish desires, ego, power struggle, holding up salvation as something exclusive to the Jew only. The problem was this. This wasn't and never was the message of God's word at all. 
Don't miss what Paul and Barnabas do at the end of 46. They declare that they are going to turn to the Gentiles. You reject it? We're going to someone who longs to receive these wonderful words of life. We're going to go someplace where it's going to be received. That word reject, by the way, has in mind of pushing, you yourselves pushing away the word. In other words, you're responsible for it. There's a personal responsibility for this. On what basis do they turn to the Gentiles? Look at verse 47. For so the Lord commanded us. And that's interesting as you continue reading. For the quote here comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 49, verse 6. It was read this morning. In context, the servant mentioned there is Israel. You go back to Isaiah 44 and talks about uh, my servant, Israel, Jacob. But on this particular occasion in Isaiah 49, 6, the text seems to suggest a servant to Israel. In fact, the one who is a servant to Israel is from Israel. He sent forth as a light to the Gentiles. Now listen here. It seems that Paul is quoting from Isaiah here in the Old Testament, making the point that Israel was originally commissioned with shining a light to the Gentiles. After all, Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 9 tells us, if we read the passages of Scripture, it says that, that they were in an advantageous position because they had the oracles of God. They had the promises of God. They had the covenants of God. They were in prime position to receive all of these wonderful truths of God and then to be the light to the Gentiles. And many of them missed it, didn't they? Paul is writing, quoting from Isaiah on the basis of the Lord's commandment. His commandment. Paul sending a message to the Jewish opponents, making it clear from the Old Testament even, that Israel was intended all along to shine this light of the word to the Gentiles. A message that many never grasped. In fact, you see in Luke chapter 2, Simeon, remember? Simeon grasped this idea. He had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the child Jesus comes in with his parents. And he holds that child. And he says, now my eyes have seen your salvation. And he says, speaking about this child in his arms, this is the one who will be a light to the Gentiles. Luke chapter 2. Jesus himself, a Jew, walked for a time and he embodied what it meant to be the light of the world. He says that that's who he was, John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. He was the Logos. He was the Word incarnate. And many of the Jews never grasped his identity. They became envious, in fact, and had him handed over to the Romans to die on a cross. And Paul now, as he boldly speaks, he sees Isaiah's word as his own. Okay? Paul is one of Christ's now. He's part of Christ's church. If Christ is the head of the church and his mission involves saving people from their sins and the means for such salvation is the proclamation of the word of God, Paul's basis for Isaiah 49 verse 6 is to say that God's word has not failed. It's not failed. It's still being accomplished today, in fact, through his servants, through these people called disciples, Christians, the church. You see, followers of Jesus are to take the light of Christ and shine it forth. That's what he's talking about. Do you notice in the text after verse 47, do you notice the absence of comment? There's no rebuttal to this. I think that means something. That's pretty significant. There's an absence of comment here. It's hard to argue when the word that you hold to is pointed right back at you and you're left looking in the mirror. This word that they would have held to, it's pointed right back at them. And at that point, you're left with a decision, aren't you? You're left with, how am I going to respond to this word? 
See, it's at this moment that the Jewish leaders found themselves at a crossroads. Do they confess their sin, repent, turn to God, move forward with works befitting repentance? You get your answer in short order. We'll come to it. We'll get to it. Verse 50. These bold words spoken by Paul and Barnabas, they have an effect on those gathered, at least the Gentiles that were gathered. We look at the text. Look at verses 48 and 49. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. Notice, they were glad about the word of God preached and glorified this word, not the preacher. They're glorying in the word. I want you to see something else. Because the word was glorified and held up, because there was a desire to hear the word. Because that was so, God brought about a harvest in Pisidia, Antioch. How many were appointed to eternal life? I don't know. But I do know that the soil of the heart was ripe for God to implant his word of truth. And so right here, speaking to the issue of salvation, there could be probably messages preached about this one verse, this one little verse. As many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Oh, that could cause some people to stir in their boots. Huh? This could bring about some tension in the room. This could cause some to wait on pins and needles as to how is this going to be preached? Which side of the line is he going to land on here? I'm not going to land on either one of those sides. And here's why. It's important to understand there are two agents involved as we think about salvation. There's, there's God and his willingness to save. Praise the Lord, he's willing to save us. His welcome, his drawing, John chapter 6, right? He draws men to himself. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. And we can't get to Christ except from God. God's the one who initiates that. But there's also man's responsibility to believe, church. Both are seen in the scriptures. We, we don't have to draw up enemy lines here. Which is what has been done for so many years. God is at work. And he's calling us. He's inviting us in to believe and receive. John 1.12. Bruce Miller in his commentary gives the example from Spurgeon here, and I, this, is, this, is, this is really rich. I, I want to share this with you. He says, speaking to this very idea in verse 48, the door into the kingdom of God carries a text above it. Whosoever will may come. Whosoever will may come. We respond to the invitation. We believe in Christ and pass through the door into the kingdom. However, once inside, we look back and discover another text above the door on the inside, which reads, chosen from before the foundation of the world. How these relate, it's a mystery. But they're both true. They're both true. See, this word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole region. Sometime, some when we look in the text, when it says in 49, it was, was being spread. There, it seems like there was some time that elapses here. And the text then causes us to ask another question. We ask, do, do you expect a response? Do you block a response? But there's a third question here that, that comes to mind as I read the text. And that is, do you cultivate a response? Do you cultivate a response? When the Gentiles heard the word, what did they do? What kind of response did they have to the word of God? The text says that the word of the Lord was being spread. It was in motion. Just as it is in motion with Paul and Barnabas here in Acts, having been sent out by the Holy Spirit, so to this gospel is advancing now in the lives of the new converts in Antioch, Pisidia. Here's the question at this point. Many of you here profess to be Christians, followers of Jesus. 
Are you busy cultivating a response from others? Does this word create within you such a desire that you can't help but share it with other people? Are you busy about the work of God? Are you in motion with the word of God, putting on display with your own life the new creation difference of Christ in you? Are you compelled to tell others what you now know? I've been reading the missionary biography of Sundar Singh, and he's a young man. He's 14, 15 years of age. And he comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and he drops literally everything, and he wants to tell somebody. He just can't keep from telling somebody. He woke his dad. He shook his dad up in the middle of the night while he's sleeping. And he says, Dad, I've got something I've got to tell you. I know who this God is. Jesus Christ. I know this man, Jesus Christ. And it makes all the difference in his life. Everything he does from that point forward is about. It's consumed in Christ. The words that he speaks Acts of serve, everything he does revolves around his new found love for Jesus Christ. For those who perhaps for some time have failed to cultivate a response from others about this word of God, the question needs to be asked, why? Why? If you are a follower of Jesus, what is it that keeps you from getting in gear with the gospel? Some of you, if we were to take that gear analogy and we get in our cars and we see there's that letter P in the car. The P stands for what? Park. Some of us are still in park in the faith. We've not gone anywhere. And the sad part is some of us are okay with it. We need to put the thing in gear. We need to start experiencing what it's like to accelerate in the faith, to move. To put your faith in drive, to go, to get to know this word, to repent of sin. Maybe that's where we start is a repenting of our sin. Oh, I can't believe I've been been doing this or haven't been doing this. Or or I just, my heart has not been right. Lord, I'm I'm recommitting. I want to lay all this down here and I want to repent of this sin. I want to turn from my sin and I want to run to you and I want to honor and obey you and what you've said here in this word. Perhaps that's what needs to happen. The text tells me it didn't take very long for these folks to begin cultivating a response in others. I I don't get the idea they took an eight-week evangelism class before they went out. They went out and they shared what they knew. They shared the difference Christ made in their lives. The Christians in Antioch, they, they seem to be busy at this point in time about the things of the Lord. One writer said that converts, as we think about converts, being converted, converts are meant to be evangelists. You know, we talk a lot about, well, I'm just not an evangelist. I've come up with all these 10 million excuses why we can't talk and speak to somebody. If Jesus Christ has made a difference in your life, you're going to share it. You're going to talk about it. Converts are evangelists. That's what we do. We talk about Christ. We're a Christian. We talk about Jesus. We live for Jesus. What a fitting end if the text ended right here in verse 49, but it doesn't. The the Jewish leaders were silent at the end of verse 47. They show up again in verse 50 with a ramped up version of persecution. It says, but the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. You get that? You know, they just... One of those things. And and they're going to make sure they know who's in charge here. These devout women. It's interesting. I I believe in in this region and some other Roman areas, there were many women who were in um, influential positions. They were high on the scale in terms of leading in the social and political arena. And so these women coupled with some of the other men. Perhaps there were some wealthy folks coupled together. There seemed to be a a manipulating going on with these folks and the leaders of the synagogue to provide some leverage to get Paul and Barnabas out of town. To simply say to everybody that this is a stance of the synagogue here in Pisidian Antioch. We'll have none of this. Bye. 
And so that's what the text says in verse 50. That's what happens. They were persecuted. They were expelled from the region. More than likely, some measure of force was applied. The Jewish leaders no longer wanted Paul and Barnabas around. Enough of the multitudes. Let's get back to sanity in our synagogue, please. We need to understand where the word of God is proclaimed. Conflict and opposition is always in the vicinity. It's all, if we read the Acts, it's, it's always going to be there. It's going to be there next week. It's going to be there the week after. It's always going to be there. Why? Because the world hates Christ. And the, that's John 15, by the way. That's not my opinion. John 15. The world hates Christ. And by connection, they hate the followers of Christ. And they hate the truth of the gospel spoken by followers of Jesus Christ. Being expelled from the region, Paul and Barnabas make a statement before they go. They send a message, not with their mouth, with their feet. They shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, which was some eight miles away. In describing this shaking the dust off their feet, one writer says this very well. I'll share this. He says it was customary for the Jews to shake off the dust of a pagan town from their feet when they returned to their land as a symbol of cleansing themselves from the impurity of sinners who did not worship God. Okay? For Jews to do this to their fellow Jews was tantamount to regarding the latter as pagan Gentiles. The Christians were demonstrating in a particularly vigorous manner that Jews who rejected the gospel and drove out the missionaries were no longer truly part of Israel but were no better than unbelievers. So while the missionaries get expelled from town, the disciples remain and flourish. And in time, Paul and Barnabas will come back through Antioch, Pisidia, even though they were expelled. They'll come back. In fact, you can look ahead in Acts 14, verse 21. It says they came back through Antioch. The elders will be appointed and the church is going to continue to thrive. Praise the Lord. Verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. The gospel preachers were booted out of town. You might be inclined to think that the disciples were deflated and gloomy at this point at the loss of their gospel preachers. Verse 52 says otherwise. Verse 52 generates one last question from the text. And really it's a pointed question for us here today. Because we see in the text what their response is. And the question is, what is your response? We see their response. The disciples, they were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. So what is your response? What then is your response as you think about this text? How are you going to respond to the word of God preached? If the gospel preachers were expelled here, if they had disappeared, if we were all of a sudden gone, what would you do? Would you just pack up? Would you just go home, just meet in your home? Would you go find another assembly? What would you do? How would you respond to that? Would you be disheartened? Would you be deflated? Would you think, oh, this isn't really worth it anymore. No one's preaching anymore. I'm not just... Or would you take responsibility? Would you be like these folks who see in the text? They were filled with joy. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Would any kind of persecution cause you to remain hidden away in your home? Just to keep that gospel to yourselves. I'd like to, I'd like to just, if I could, point to two different groups of people that are here today. There are always two different groups of people that are here. I never want to assume that I'm preaching always only to a group of Christians. I believe there are many Christians here today. But I also believe there are some folks who have not yet given their life to Christ. And to those of you here today who have no experience whatsoever with what verse 52 says. Speaking of these disciples being filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I want to ask, how are you going to respond to the preached word. You see, these two kinds of people that I'm speaking of this morning, those who believe in Jesus and trust completely in his life-giving word, and secondly, those who reject Jesus and rely upon their own understanding. The one who believes is assured of everlasting life. God promises that to those who believe on the name of Jesus and receive his free gift of salvation, which comes one way. Through the blood of his son, Jesus. 
Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no one who comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. The one who chooses not to believe is assured of something as well. He's assured of everlasting death in a place the Bible calls hell. Eternal separation from God. No hope. And if in this life only you are setting your sights on things in this world, to use Paul's terminology, you are a pitiable person. <laughs> Corinthians chapter 15, that's the word he uses. If all we have our hope set on are things here in this life, you have no hope. You have been given today to respond to the word of God. And some of you here know that you're not right with God. And you have yet to humble yourself, repent of your sins, and submit to the authority of God in your life. And I beg you today to make today the day of your salvation. Don't let another Sunday, please, don't let another Sunday go by without a response to his word. And I'm reminded of that picture. I think of this picture quite often at the end of Romans 10 when the scripture is speaking to Israel, this rebellious people. In the picture, the picture in Romans 10, 21, God says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. See the picture? God's waiting. God's there. He's ready. But so many of, not just Israel, there are people today that are content walking their own way, doing their own thing. Make today the day of your salvation. To those of you who know a little bit about what verse 52 says in the text. Ask yourself whether you are living as a disciple ought to live. A disciple is filled with joy in spite of his circumstances, in spite of trials, in spite of persecution, in spite of suffering. A disciple is filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, one precipitates the other, does it not? If you are filled with the Holy Spirit, one of the fruit mentioned in Galatians chapter 5 is joy. You are going to be a joyful person. Because you have the Spirit of Christ in you. Not because your life just seems to be going really well. A, a disciple busies himself following Jesus. A disciple eagerly anticipates hearing from God. He's always listening with a view to respond in obedience. And so the text today, church, it shows us a right response to the word of God. If I was to summarize the questions we talked about, it would be this. Expect God to work through his word. Don't block God's word at work. Work at sharing God's word. And rejoice that God's word works in you. Disciples of Jesus always respond. They unashamedly take God at his word and they obey. And what we see here in Acts 13, 42 to 52 is a text that challenges us to respond to the preached word. So you've heard the word of God preached this morning. We saw the response of the folks back in Antioch, Pisidia. The question that remains this morning is what is... Your response. What is your response to the preached word? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would stir within us a need to respond continually to your word. Use us for your glory and your purposes for the remainder of our days. I pray that we would be busy about the right things and that our days would be consumed with how to please you. I pray, Father, you would tend to the hearts that are gathered here today. I pray you would open the eyes of each one. That he may see his need for Jesus and come to know the joy of the Holy Spirit in his life. May this church see clearly to shine the light of Christ to the end of the earth. As you speak, Lord, through your word, I pray that we would be quick to respond in obedience. 
May we see your word and respond to what you have to say. Even yet today. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.